Let us pray. We remember today, O God, your many gifts and graces. We remember Tom Fry and his service to our community. We remember Andrew Primorano and all who miss him and remember him so gratefully. We ask you to be with those who mourn and grieve, comfort them, be with each of us as we this day and every moment of every day seek to live into the promise of your grace and your hope. And we ask you now to silence in us any voice but your own. And by your spirit, engage us in your word that we might be transformed to serve you, to love you, to claim your good news for Christ's sake. Amen. Our epistle lesson this morning comes from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, the first nine verses of the third chapter. Let us hear God's word. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants, working together. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we live together? How do we live together as a community, one of many communities of which certainly we are each a part? A family or a partnership, a neighborhood, a church, a nation, a culture. How do we live together? What values do we enlist? What principles do we activate? And when we strive so faithfully and things don't work out as we want them to, how do we persevere in the face of resistance or disappointment or rejection? How do we live together? A couple of weeks ago in a session, Deacon Conversation, we explored the meaning of the word reconciliation and 
one of our elders said reconciliation to her is how we put together the beliefs of our faith and living together in the world. How do we do that? How do we reconcile those values that we hold so dear that we've claimed again today at the baptismal font with life in our broken and fearful world? Well, several recent movies, other than, of course, the Lego Batman movie, which I can't wait to see, several other recent movies based on actual events, as they say, have sought answer to this very question. Perhaps some of you saw Hidden Figures. And if you haven't, you should, right? If you haven't, you should. Hidden Figures dramatizes the stories of three women, three African-American women, three extraordinarily gifted women who overcame the double evils of sexism and racism to do something simple, get an American into orbit around the Earth. They were mathematicians and engineers who, because of their race and their gender, were relegated to NASA's basements, literally and figuratively, NASA's basements. They were denied, and they persisted. That's the story, their persistence. But that they had to persist is also part of the story as well. And the question how we live together is raised in the context of this wonderful film. How do we not live together, it often demonstrated, to divide, to degrade, to demean, to destroy, based on any human or worldly condition? I don't know how important it is in the big picture that the two of the central characters, the great mathematician Katherine Johnson and the astronaut John Glenn, who she helped calculate into space, were we're both Presbyterian elders, but I got to say it anyway. <laughs> but as I watched that movie and thought about the events now some 50 years later, how we combat now anything that divides or degrades or demeans or destroys based on anything, anything, that's how we live together. Perhaps some of you saw the film Loving. If you haven't and can still find it, you should see it. While Hidden Figures is about free and equal access to things like work and education and restrooms and water fountains, more public expressions of human dignity, Loving tells a tale of more fundamental expressions of human dignity who you can love, and where you can live and love. Richard and Mildred Loving were in love and expecting a baby. They planned to get married, which was all well and good, except in Virginia in the late 1950s that was illegal, it was deemed immoral both by the white church and the state for the simple reason that Richard was white and Mildred was black. Misignation is the name, it's called, which puts almost a scientific gloss on a gruesome interpretation of who humanity is. Mildred is jailed, cr 
cruelly while she is pregnant. They go off to get married in Washington, D.C., but when they return to Virginia, they're arrested and told their marriage is not recognized. And if they persist in living together, they will be permanently imprisoned, their children removed from them. So to avoid jail, they agree to stay out of Virginia for 25 years. 25 years. It is a heartbreaking scene. So they move back to Washington, but they are rural people and the pull of Virginia is strong, so they return in hiding in the cover of night, not to fight this unjust law, but simply to live privately, quietly, in peace. Of course, that can't happen. The ultimate result is a U.S. Supreme Court victory. I'm told every first-year law student studies it, which seems to me a good thing. How do we live together when we can't do the fundamental things that we believe are gifts of God? To love who we love and live where we want to live. And how do we combat those forces that persist, even now, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so much? These are not new questions, of course. The biblical story from start to finish is in many ways about this very question. How will God's people live together in community and how will God's people live together in community in environments that oftentimes aren't welcoming of them or hostile to them? How will we live together? Now in that story, that biblical story from start to finish, there are moments when things work very well and, and we should pay attention to them. There are moments when things don't work quite so well, we should pay attention to them as well because Human life is human life. Sometimes those very good moments and those not so good moments come together. The highest peaks and the lowest valleys of human living intertwined. We saw that just last week on this chancel as our wonderful youth shared the Joseph story. At one moment, a group of brothers is ready to kill their brother. Kill their brother. They settle simply for selling him into slavery. But that same brother is willing to forgive and welcome. How do we live together? It's messy, is it not? And often we strive to live up to aspirations and we fall short. Sometimes we fall so short and are so blind to it that we codify it. In the church, in our culture, we sinfully and tragically codify it. I kept thinking about the process that led us to white-only and colored-only water fountains. Codifying how not to live together because of human fallenness and sin and fear. I kept thinking about that as these three remarkable women faced racial barriers and glass ceilings all at the same time. Many still do in all kinds of workplaces. Our calling, I believe, as people of faith is to identify when we've grotesquely mangled our understanding of communal life.
and simply to fix it. Fix it on behalf of our commitment to human values like decency and civility and respect, liberty and justice for all, but at a, at a deeper level, fix it on behalf of our faith. Our fundamental belief that we are all created in the image of God. Not that we have it perfect by any means. The church has, in its long history, often been the best perpetrator of racism and sexism and other exclusionary practices. That's why it's even more urgent for us to fix it, to repair the breach, to reconcile. Because when we listen to God and our better angels, we have an absolutely clear and compelling sense of call. These are not new questions. The bulk of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the first churches were written to address conflict. Church, church conflict, imagine that. It's only 20 or 30 years after Jesus walked the earth, and already things were going south. There were quarrels and factions and infightings. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, Paul writes, you are not of God. There are factions in the church, factions following different leaders, and leaders are taking credit for growth, followers are willing to give that credit, teams are being set, hence the infighting, hence the obscuring of the church's true mission. So Paul reminds them that whatever else happens, it is God who gives the growth to the church. No one else, just God, God alone. And then Paul concludes this little passage with a tremendous mission statement for it all. We are God's servants. We are God's servants, working together. You are God's field, God's building. Remembering that we are God's servants puts us all at a place of equal footing. There's no seat at the table more or less prominent than any other. And when the church, in its past or current practice, and in whatever way, suggests that any person's place is any less than any other's, here's our reminder. Make it right. We can't be the field or the building we are called to be unless all of us are working together. Anything less is less than the gospel. These are not new questions. The ancient Israelites, some millennia before the church at Corinth gathered, faced the imminent death of their leader Moses. You can imagine they are unsure about their future. Moses' leadership in so many ways has been core to their formation. He has led them out of slavery. He has been the conduit between God and the people. With him gone, how will they survive? They knew their capacity for faithfulness, but they also knew their capacity for pettiness and for infighting. They practiced it pretty well, even moments after they were freed from captivity. And Moses knew this. He had experienced it. 
He knew what it was like to have his own leadership questioned. Brad read a portion of a kind of farewell address. Moses says to the people, whether I'm here or not, you will always have choices. They're not my choices. They are God's choices. I'm simply the mouthpiece. There will be other leaders to follow, but there is only one God, and this God has said, if you love me, if you walk in my ways, you will be blessed. If you don't, you won't. I think now how many choices face us. The very same temptation to bow to other gods, the god of wealth, or the god of fear, or the god of no god. The choices will always be before us, and when we choose the god who has led us out of captivity, we will choose life. Choose life. And we will be blessed. And our community will be strong. Choose life, Moses tells the people. Is there any other barometer than that? For our own lives, for the lives of those we love, for the lives of those we are connected to in church and in community, choose life. You and me, choose life. And when others can't, either because they lack the capacity or because the world has established conditions that prevent them from doing so. We choose for them. We choose life for them. And we work day by day to dismantle whatever realities get in their way to live the lives fully and freely that God intends for them, for all of us. Now, Richard and Mildred Loving were not political activists by any means. They were not seeking to lead a cause. Richard just wanted to work on his cars in his garage. Mildred wanted to tend her garden. They wanted to play with their children in the field. So oddly, when they were invited to be present at the Supreme Court to hear their case being presented before the justices, they declined the invitation. Or per the movie, anyway, Mr. Loving strongly declined, and Mrs. Loving then complied with her husband's wishes. The lawyers are kind of stunned by this. Why don't you want to go to the Supreme Court to hear your case being argued? They would have none of it. The lawyer asked him, therefore, what should I tell the justices if they ask me if you have anything to say? What should I tell them? What case should I make? And Richard Loving pauses for a moment and says simply, tell them I love my wife. That's all he says. Tell them I love my wife. No ethical case to be made, no political argument to be offered. Tell them I love my wife. Tell them I choose life. And I'm willing to go to jail to love the woman I love. Catherine Jackson and her colleagues chose life and were willing to undergo indignities to pursue the work they were called to do. 
to do very complicated mathematical computations. Tell them I choose life. You and me, we choose life. And we recommit ourselves to work for and increasingly with those who can't. Until every child of God, every child of God experiences blessing. Every child of God has a place at the table and all are loved fully and freely. All are loved fully and freely all of our days. Amen.